Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we will explore the local arts culture and community in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, and organizations. We'll discuss all types of mediums with the goal of enriching local arts culture. Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, to our very, very special once-a-year spooky Halloween episode. My name is Elise, and our resident ghost named Ben can't speak for himself and other than ooh noises. I'm Ben. I'm here. And we are here with our super spooky special guest, Kiki Keezer from Mission Spooky Podcast. Hey, how's it going? It's going. I'm so excited to be on your podcast this time. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I will encourage you all to dig back in Mission Spooky's um, accounts and find my episode from a few months ago. I had such a good time and their podcast is so hysterical. So definitely check it out. We did an episode on Getters Island in Easton. So if you're local and you're not familiar with that spot, definitely go and check it out. We had such a good time and such fun uh, conversation about such a weird, <laughs> weird little phenomenon going on in Easton. So. <laughs> so I'm sorry, but there was, you know, the joke about Paul's ropes and stuff. And I still think, <laughs> I think that that takes the cake for one of the most hysterical impromptu jokes ever made. The longest podcast bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so if you want to know more about <laughs> Paul's ropes and stuff, head on over to the Elise included episode of the Mission Spooky podcast. It is, it is, is ep- very funny. This, sorry, guys. <laughs> no, I, I, I enjoyed episode listening to it. Episode 73. Episode 73. Thank you so much. Well, You're welcome. Kiki, thank you so much for joining us today. And we usually start off our episodes chatting a little bit about something we were up to in the last week. And I know we weren't there at the same time, but I wanted to make sure we gave a shout out to... Nina Budhansing, Volux Auto Works, and the Midnight Gallery. Midnight Gallery. Which is a newly opened gallery space over in Schnecksville. It's in the same building with Volux Auto Works. So there's always uh, some really amazing cars in there as well. <laughs> right. But they had a pop-up Halloween show that opened this past weekend um, that I actually, that was like my first official gallery show i was very excited about that (laughs) congratulations i didn't know that so i had a painting in there ben had a um what would you what would you say ben a a photograph Uh, yeah Uh, mixed media photograph mixed media (laughs) photograph thing (laughs) oh wait Um, a second are you are you silent hill no I am. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember who did that one i did a piece called behind the mini mart which was a photograph ripped (gasps) up and float mounted Oh, dude, I did not know that was you. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I looked at that. I was like, mm, well, it's pretty scary, though. <laughs> it was cool. It's too scary for inside the house. I don't know. <laughs> no, I was really I was really just thinking about the six year old at this point. I was like, uh, understand. Be careful what mom puts on the walls. Yeah. <laughs> got to be careful walking around Bethlehem, too. That was taken behind the 7-Eleven. I didn't change the photo at all. Oh, my God. <gasps> No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for a minute, I was like, "Mm." the only thing I, if you had told me Philly, I would have told you that you were 100% correct. And I've seen some things, man. I I feel like I need to give Ben a little bit of space here to talk about why exactly that piece came together and um, our podcast's relationship to (laughs) 7-Eleven. 
<laughs> so that that piece uh, is some pre-production artwork for a short film that I'm working on. We had a podcast recording and went to a bar in Bethlehem. And then as we were leaving that bar, there was this hooded figure standing on the corner of the street. And we walked by and he just like jolts up and he's like, oh, hey, guys. And we're like, what the hell is going on right now? We're like, hi, uh, all right, well, bye. We're, we're going to keep walking now. But then we get to the end of the next block, and and he's there again, and he does the exact same thing. <laughs> and we go like what? three more blocks up, and every time we're walking past this guy, we have absolutely no idea how he's getting ahead of us, positioned, and somehow not out of breath by the time that we get to him to do the exact same thing over and over and over again. All that because we were going to 7-Eleven to grab Slurpees. <laughs> so I feel like you may have had a paranormal experience. It, it I'm very just gonna go on easily a limb here. could have been. Yeah, that's not normal, Ben. Like, just so you know. People don't usually get ahead of you that quickly without you seeing them do it. The, the in-person, he did not have the same face that I made the picture have very true feeling of fear in a very artistic way. Great job, Ben. Yes. Yes. Uh, shout out to my brother who is the model in that piece as well. <laughs> <laughs> I texted him at like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night and I'm like, hey, you want to go to 7-Eleven in Bethlehem? <laughs> He's like, why? And I'm like, I need to take your picture. <laughs> so then he comes at like 2 a.m. <laughs> Yep. Um, look like complete weirdos just standing outside the back of the 7-Eleven <laughs> taking good photos happens at, in an alley. <laughs> nothing good happens at 7-Eleven after 11 p.m. We'll leave oh, it at that. Gosh. We all have that one sibling, though, that we can always count on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is totally my brother. <laughs> I asked my little sister if she, well, the, the youngest of the little sisters, if, uh, if she'd be interested in going to a paranormal uh, event with me so to speak it's at a restaurant she goes yep i said yeah i didn't tell you what i don't care do we get do we eat well yeah they're gonna okay that's fine <laughs> okay <laughs> good to know that's as the, long as there's food that's she's in the energy right. that we need out of our siblings yeah. <laughs> yeah so midnight gallery was pretty cool um it got was, to see your artwork for the first time at least well you. in person i've seen it on instagram <laughs> but you know yeah, I huge congratulations to Nina, who um, feel free to s scroll back on our podcast list. She was the third episode of the Lehigh Valley Arts podcast to ever exist. Um, really awesome gallery space, really just great group of artists, really fun, really well put together. So congratulations, Nina. Congratulations, Midnight Gallery, and definitely make it out there to check them out. Totally. And Nina was also, the f I believe, the first guest to help guest host this. That's true. And she did that with Andy Grunberg, whose work is also on display at Midnight Gallery right now. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Lots of friends, lots of uh, cool artwork to check out. So make sure you get on over there. Well, Kiki, I'd love to share a little bit about you. And then we absolutely have to get into our super spooky theme of the week. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Kiki Kieser is a proud mom of a wonderful six-year-old boy, her educational background is in archaeology with a concentration in classical studies, in parentheses, Egyptian, Roman, Greek, Mexican, in that order, and an anthropologist with a focus on physical anthropology. 
She received a National Science Foundation grant for the study of taphonomy of grave sites for an extinct indigenous tribe of modern day Kentucky. Ask me what I've done with it. And I'm going to tell you that I now have a podcast. <laughs> Boom, baby. More than most people. Okay. <laughs> Very fairly talking to two other people who took their art degrees and started a podcast. Winning. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) But I know when when I was on your show, we actually had quite a bit to talk about when it came to art. So I was curious what your um, interest or focus area of art is. Ancient art, obviously. Uh, Most of it was Egyptian architecture, that sort of thing. Uh, I did get way back in the day, I was actually considering going for art. I got accepted to an art school in Miami, but uh, oddly enough, it was going to be for comic book art because <laughs> I'm a total nerd. And I wound up just thinking that Miami wasn't a really good fit for me personally, even though I did have family there. It wasn't like, oh, I'm moving away from home. My aunt and uncle lived there at the time. So I was going to have family like right around the corner basically um but i was like eh, i don't know um i really stuck with archaeology i love the history i love physical anthropology and i thought about going into forensics with that as well but uh i don't know to be honest things got derailed at 9 11 because we had some a lot of well a lot of things happen interior wise you couldn't just be an archaeologist and go to another state and mm. practice they were trying to make sure that you were in state you know because things were like iffy where jobs were concerned mm. so i just wound up graduating at literally the worst time in the entire world <laughs> to be an archaeologist oh, fair enough i graduated in 2020 uh mid pandemic so i feel you oh yeah yeah it's it, <laughs> yeah. very similar honestly um I was in a, that higher level of uh, physical anthropology. That's how we got the grant. We were already doing like 500 level classes for a bachelor's degree. Mm. And instead of going to Egypt, like I was supposed to, uh, all of that got canceled because of the terrorist attack. And instead I was put on a reserve list, me and the 10 other, well, nine other people in the program were put on a reserve list to go collect remains in New York city. Wow. Uh, because they were desperate at the time, they weren't really sure what they were going to have as far as people and how much time it was going to take. And we were all qualified at that time to at least be able to tell you whether that was human remains or, you know, um, or not. Um, we, I guess maybe thankfully in the long run did not have to get called up to do that, but I would have done it. Um, you know, if called up. So yeah, that's the sad part. (laughs) That's the sad story of the, of the archaeologist that almost was. But then after I did do a brief stint in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, my degree is from University of North Carolina, both of them, because they're two separate bachelor's degrees. And uh, that has a connection with Bethlehem because Salem, old Salem was Moravians who moved down to Salem, North Carolina to start, uh, start a town basically. Uh, so I always laughed when I'd go to Salem and we'd have those Moravian cookies in the can and it would say imported <laughs> from Bethlehem on it. And I'm like, seriously? Okay. Can't get away. <laughs> no, I couldn't get away. And that was cool. I did a site called the Potter's uh, House. And so 
back in the day, they would just dump all their trash refuse out the window. Hmm. And we knew where the window was. And so my area was uh, sifting through all of that refuse, basically, and seeing what we could find. And that was really cool because it was it was animal remains, you know, like chicken, cow, pork, you know, you're like things that they would have eaten. And broken cups and broken pottery. And it was just kind of neat to see, you know, what people used to do with their trash. And, you know, now we're looking at it going, oh, look at that. That came from England. That little <laughs> tiny piece of pottery right there. That's that's Blue Delft. That's pretty cool. I was just having a conversation with someone about those cookies the other day because I don't <laughs> think I realized until into my adulthood that uh, not everyone had those cookies growing up. And that was like a holiday staple in my house. <laughs> so we were talking about like, I was like, yeah, those like thin cookies. And they're like, what What are you talking about? I was like, the thin cookies. <laughs> you know, the Christmas ones. <laughs> Like no, the they're like, no. molasses gingerbread yeah. thin wafer one. Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> but yeah, it just turned out I embarrassed myself, so it's fine. But that's super cool. I I'm so curious, like, is out of all of the things that you had the opportunity to use your degree with um when it comes to anthropology, was that one of your favorite spots that you got to dig up stuff? Well, it has to be because unfortunately it was the only place I ever got to dig up stuff, <laughs> to be quite honest. It was like, uh, that was actually part of my field school. So I wasn't even getting paid to do that. I had to pay to do that. Mm. That's the best part. Um, but it was, a, it was a lot of fun and very educational. And I, I did wind up volunteering after for a while at that site in Old Salem. Again, volunteering, so not getting paid. Uh, but it was fun, though, because everything that we had dug up was in the lab, and then you're getting to, you know, really examine it and mark it and see what it really was. Like there was a there was a thing that we could have sworn was a gun. It was so rusted and, and so covered in stuff, and we knew that the Department of Transportation had been through several times in this area, and so. That meant that it got covered over a couple of times, mm. especially when they were trying to build the road beside it. And so we thought, oh, my God, did someone like, you know, throw a gun away? Like, what if there's an unsolved case? You know how, look, anthropologist minds, archaeologist minds, we're right to the mystery. We're like, did someone murder someone and then bury this, you know, <laughs> uh, guess what it was? It was a very rusty horseshoe. Yeah, so that I that's the only time I ever actually got to dig. And, uh, yeah, it sucked. I wanted to do more, but it was just nothing was open. Mm. So then, of course, when it became open, I had I already had like the quote new career, which was working at Borders Books as a manager. <laughs> now I'm going to blow I'm going to blow y'all's mind for a second because I'm ready. I actually I actually got paid 25 cents more an hour working at borders as a manager than I would have if I was in the trench as an archaeologist. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. In Which America, I didn't go back. Low value of cultural objects. <laughs> so mad. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, man. That fits, yep. I guess. <laughs> 
And if you really oh. want to be sad, uh, how many years later? That was like 2000, uh, mid, uh, 2006 or seven. I was with Borders up until the very, until we closed, like, you know, because we went bankrupt. Mm. So I closed two stores, actually. I closed my Walden Bookstore first and then was transferred to Borders because that was the parent company. And then I worked there for several years and then wound up closing that store too. So you figure that time period was like 2006 or seven. I can't remember. Mm. Um, I got paid less when I moved back to Pennsylvania working again in retail. I got paid less in 2020 than I did in North Carolina in 2008. Oh, gosh. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Then they wonder why, you know, we can't afford our, our bills but whatever hey <laughs> we're here to talk about death <laughs> it all leads to death anyways <laughs> right well i no that's too funny because i was trying to come up with some like very seamless transition between like you're studying all these objects that people used in life and now we're going to talk about gravestones <laughs> the death of retail into gravestones it, there you go it's, it is perfect perfect i feel like maybe this came up um post recording with you on your podcast kiki but we found that uh we had a fairly dark uh, similar interest which was um everything death and dying so <laughs> so of course that transition to let's do an arts podcast episode about historic art uh specifically gravestones graveyards and cemeteries <laughs> hey look if there's one constant we all die so yeah it's true and it's perfect because i had absolutely no specific knowledge about your educational background so as soon as i read your bio i was like oh shit she's gonna talk circles around me because i spent the last three <laughs> days doing all this research about graveyards and cemeteries <laughs> This woman has a degree in skeletons. It's all right. I only know how to kill you and how to bury you without getting caught. Oh, That's okay. Not really that. Yeah, it's not really that important to usually, the actual gravestones. Usually that statement isn't prefaced by don't worry, um, but I'll try not to worry. <laughs> there you go. That's your little anthro that's your little physical anthropology joke that we always say. Don't worry, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the archaeology joke you can, I, I have I have to tell you this because it's so funny the archaeology joke was that the first day of class literal first day of class where there's like maybe 50 students and my professor love him to death Dr. Souls he says just so you know uh, just so you know everybody this is a very like important class about archaeology um, you know X does not mark the spot Haha, ha. and also, if you think that archaeology is exactly like Indiana Jones, then you might as well just get up and leave right now. So the four of us who are very serious about archaeology all looked at each other and were like, "Well, let's go." <laughs> <laughs> he just looked at us, and then we're like, "We're just kidding. We're just kidding. We're just kidding." <laughs> You'd be amazed at how many students didn't show up the next time to class. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I feel like there's a version of that in every 
like college class, I started school for hospitality and they're like, if you're not really serious about hotels, then get up and leave right now. And I was like, should I leave? All right, I'm out. <laughs> like, okay. I just need to make some money. <laughs> I imagine with that Indiana Jones statement, like one of the four of you is like wearing an Indiana Jones cap. And then as soon as you said that, they're like, quick, knock it off and act like nothing's wrong. <laughs> There was actually a guy, oh man, I can't remember his name, but there was a guy who had a fedora, <laughs> but he wasn't wearing it that day. So that's pretty funny. Just rips it off <laughs> angrily. God damn. Like, like, take that off. Take it off. Well, Kiki, where where would you like to start with our discussion of all things death and dying? I feel like we've got so many, so many fun <laughs> things to share and put out there in the world. Oh, goodness. So, I, you know, I could regale you with the oldest known grave sites. I like that. Kind of a good jumping off point. I like that. Because uh, they've changed a little bit since uh, some newer discoveries have been made. So his, the historical area of the Levant is the oldest site, Middle Paleolithic, 120,000 years ago. If you can... Wrap your brain around that one. <laughs> sometimes I can't. I'm like, what? That is so old. Older than me, JC. Just in case he listens to it because he's constantly telling me how old I am. Uh, the other grave sites in the order from oldest to youngest is Kenya, Israel, Alaska, Germany, which also has the oldest surviving cemetery at Gross Frendenwald. Mm. And then Greece and Pakistan. I'm surprised Greece is so uh, high up on the list. Yeah, I guess it. Um, Kenya had one single child that was buried, and it's it still counts as like a grave site, right? Because we're not talking like cemeteries, right? Sure. So yet, um, so. That one, I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Kenya. Uh, yeah, it has to be because it's, it's definitely not Pakistan. Yeah, Kenya has like, a, I think the child was only three years old and it was the first time that we were seeing someone laid out in what we would consider like the traditional layout of someone mm-hmm. on their back with their hands crossed kind of thing. In doing a lot of this research, it was interesting kind of trying to, for my own purposes, find distinctions between like grave site, burial site, graveyard, cemetery, uh, churchyard, like there's so many different um, words that are used kind of like interchangeably. But I think it's interesting, especially with like the early kind of uh, burials, like you mentioned, the child in Kenya, like it's this idea of a burial ground or a burial space that's like super intentional, um, which I know in art history, we talk a lot about um like creating intentional space is like the indication of the first layers of a society being built. Um, and I like right. I think about that a lot with art history, but I don't know that people really think about it a lot with like burial sites. It's kind of interesting because it, it indicates this notion of like someone is going to stay there if they're putting all of this energy and time and space into like burying someone. <laughs> Right, or at least it's a it's a very familiar uh, familiar site. God, I'm having an issue talking today. <laughs> familiar site. So if you're a nomadic tribe, for example, 
there's some caves that people were using to bury their dead in, but they might be, they might not stay in that area, but it's definitely a site that they're going to recognize time and time again. So that's, it's kind of interesting because there's no permanency there, but mm. yet it is permanent because the cave doesn't change. Right. Mm. I do have separate information talking about the difference between things. There's also the oldest survived oldest surviving carved headstone hmm. very specific because <laughs> uh, this is the headstone that we're used to seeing hmm. right the upright not necessarily in the ground level uh, and that is the Miles Standish burial ground in Massachusetts wow and the oldest one belongs to Captain Jonathan Alden from 1697 and that cemetery is also on the National Registrar of Historic Places. And that just got placed on there in 2015. I shouldn't be that surprised because we live in Pennsylvania and I see <laughs> gravestones at churches all over town that say like early 1700s, mid 1700s. But it's so interesting, like the oldest surviving gravestone of the like style we're used to seeing is in Massachusetts. How weird. So I... Um... I didn't focus at all on how these things are made because, <laughs> as I said, that's the that's the historical part of me. I'm looking at the history of everything. But uh, so how the heck do they do it? Oh, no, you're good. Do you know? So there's <laughs> <laughs> I kind of know, but I was trying to approach this as like a lot of gravestones are made the way that like outdoor sculpture is made, especially really traditional outdoor sculpture. They're blocks that are cut out of whatever stone it could be. I think in Pennsylvania a lot, they end up being like limestone um, because it's like readily available. Um, But whatever kind of stone they're carved from that, there's uh, been many different ways that they've been etched or created over the years. I think in most recent years, it's gone to like laser cutting. Um, But there's like cutting with pneumatic drills, which are used in stone sculpture a lot. Um, Water jet cutting or um, like engraving. There's like special engraving tools that are used for stones. But yeah, I think limestone is like a really popular for older gravestones in Pennsylvania. Um, but more recently, because it's a lot cheaper and a lot more reasonable, people use concrete too. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Like, So I live up the street from Niski Hill Cemetery, which is here in Bethlehem. And there is an insane amount of grave sites and grave stones from different time periods. They're all in different styles. They're some of like the most strange, bizarre <laughs> um, shapes, sizes um, of gravestones that I've ever seen. It's I think the address is Church Street, but it's right in like historic Bethlehem. And it's on, it's a really interesting location. It's like on kind of this slope that heads down towards the riverbank that goes behind Bethlehem Steel. So when there's no leaves on the trees, up on the hill, you can see like the back of Bethlehem Steel really well. It's a really cool location and yeah. like this weird juxtaposition between uh, like death and industry. It's very like artistic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that one I ha- I know I haven't been to that one then. Yeah, it's there's a cannon. There is, yep. That's, there's a cannon gravestone. That one's yeah. kind of interesting. Like full size too. 
it's it's kind of crazy yeah civil war canon there's quite a few um and i'm not sure if it's because it's i i really struggled to find very much information about it because the record keeping on the cemetery is really difficult um so i don't want to speak too much out of turn but it was originally founded in the 1860s as a moravian cemetery um, which is why there are so many flat gravestones um, a lot of the times like gravestones fall over so people assume that like when you see gravestones laying on the ground it's like one that's fallen over but moravians actually made their gravestones flat like lay flat on the ground because mm. it was supposed to symbolize um, that even in death everyone is equal because there was a lot of emphasis in moravian religion and spirituality and culture on like communal and equality so there's a lot of stones like that but then over the years the cemetery was adapted to be not just moravian so there's even um there's a word for it but i can't think of it basically gravestones that are pre-written out for people who haven't died yet so there are people living right mm. now who will be buried alongside moravians from two or three hundred years ago it's really fascinating and a, just a super cool cemetery yeah so did they do they call it god's acre up here so god's acre is another cemetery that's a little bit more interior to historic bethlehem um that's on like the like in like the central Moravian church area. Gotcha. Um, and that one is strictly a Moravian cemetery and it was like an urban cemetery. So they had like the confines of it within this city parameter and filled it up. And now it's <laughs> uh, like a historic site that you can visit still. And it's really quite beautiful and very peaceful, but um, sometimes misleading because it looks from a distance looks like a park until you get close and then you see all of the gravestones and they're all flat against the ground. Yeah. You'd, you'd, said, awesome. some, you'd said something yeah. really interesting to me before that I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on, but limestone being used. And mm -hmm. I mean, limestone with rain tends to erode very quickly. So I'd be curious what kind of lost history there may be due to the erosion of these gravestones being made out of limestone? That's an interesting question. <laughs> I'm like, that's a really good looking question. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of the draw for like using limestone was is in Pennsylvania is readily available. So it's yeah. fairly cheap. It's oh, yeah. fairly soft in terms of like something someone would use to sculpt with. Oh yeah. Um, so it's easy to like engrave into, but if you see like limestone gravestones now, they're kind of white. They're like, and mm -hmm. they look dirty, obviously, because they're very weathered. Um, but they, they lose like over time with the weathering, they lose that kind of like bluish, greenish, like limestone color and become yeah. like white. But I think, yeah, there's a lot of uh, like the readability of the text on the stones is probably where that like lost history piece comes yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. I'd also be curious to hear like how long on average it would take a limestone um, gravehead to get to the point where it's no longer readable. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, there's really, really old ones in yeah. Pennsylvania that Which are is still super cool. Kind of readable. I know that there was one, um, it's called 
peach bottom slate. Supposedly like the nicest slate in the entire world at one point. Um, people begged Pennsylvania to send the stuff to them. Wow. Hmm. And that a lot of our earlier gravestones were made from that. Interesting. Oh. Um, 1785 is when that quarry opened. And then uh, by the 1840s, they were shipping it all over the place. So, wow. um, yeah. Um, and then <laughs> I love when these names always pop up and you're just like, uh-huh. <laughs> Um, so we sent a lot back to, uh, England and one of the places, uh, is in North Wales, which we also know that there's a North Wales here in Pennsylvania, not too far outside yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. I'm... I just happened to notice that name. I was like, oh, that's, <laughs> you know, connection. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's super cool. And I'm sure, like, there's being the, like, slate belt, rust belt kind of region, there's probably a lot of gravestones in Pennsylvania made of tons of different kinds of oh, yeah. stone and rock. Because if it wasn't readily available here, like, you could get it from somewhere not too far away, I'm sure. So whenever anybody talks about stone, uh, I always... as being interested in the paranormal, I think about the stone tape theory, which suggests that energy, uh, residual energies from like historic events might be actually recorded inside stone, mm -hmm. which is where we get um, a residual haunting from, because it's not that it, it's not like it's an intelligent ghost. It's just replaying history. It's kind of an interesting uh, theory, but then I'm just like, yeah, uh, we make gravestones out of, you know, well, gravestone, stone. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. one of the things that I'm always like, yeah, but are, are graves haunted? I mean, who's going to hang out? Like, you know, <laughs> if I'm a ghost and I have a choice, I'm not going to hang out at my, my burial. You know, I'm going to go scare someone somewhere else. <laughs> that's just me. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's interesting because I think I – this concept of like cemeteries and grave sites are more for the living than they are for the dead. But um, if you do subscribe to this like theory of energy being continually trapped in this cyclical pattern in stone in a cemetery, then uh, it's rife with spirits and ghosts. I'm sure because everything's made out of stone and rocks. <laughs> That's why I was like, is it the stone itself? Or what if what if the stone was around? Like someone postulated about like, well, uh, you know, Gettysburg, for example, being a tremendous battle and all these terrible things happening. Uh, what if somebody takes stone from there and then like makes a gravestone out of it? And are you translating some of that history to another part of the country? Like a what if scenario? It doesn't necessarily have to be like the person. It could be something else, which makes me just sort of interested when I study Then This is like a, for me, it's like folklore history. You study these quote hauntings of graveyards and it's always, um, it always seems like it's someone not attached to the site itself. Mm -hmm. So I have a theory that, well, if, if the stone tape theory is correct, then maybe the stone was quarried somewhere where something terrible happened. And it, if you agree with that, or you think it's even possible, then Maybe that event or someone from that event is just being replayed over and over again somewhere else. 
this is the kind of crap that I think about at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Fair enough. I hate that I'm going to compare it to that um, because I've only read the first book and then watched some of the show, which I personally don't particularly like. But Outlander, if you're familiar. <laughs> um, I haven't watched that at all. And I, I wanted to. I just... There's so many things to watch. Um, it's not my favorite thing I've ever watched, but I was in a working scenario a couple years ago where a lot of the people I was working with watched it and I watched it. But it is centered around this theme of like these standing stones that have trapped residual energy um, so much so that you can travel back in time by touching the stones. So kind of this mm -hmm. like connection to um, Scottish Highlander time period to 1940s Scotland. So it's kind of interesting and I think kind of falls along that theme of like uh, something even like Stonehenge or oh. stones that are used in uh, innocuous like spiritual ways just to represent because they have this energy that's drawn to them or they draw this type of energy or hold this type of energy. But um, that's kind of the concept like behind that show among a million other things. But that's like the central plot theme. So I got confused for a minute. I was thinking of a completely different show until you <laughs> mentioned the Scottish Highlands. And I was like, oh, Outlander. Okay. And that makes sense because the idea of the stone tape theory did come from, uh, from Babbage. I believe he was English. Yeah. So I didn't realize Diana Galbaldon may have taken that concept when she wrote the books. I did not read the books and I did not watch the show, <laughs> but I, but, but I work for borders. <laughs> Extraneous book information. I like that idea that um, maybe it's the gravestones that hold all of the spooky energy surrounding like a cemetery. Right. Yeah. Cause it's like, that's what it, we've done it to ourselves. <laughs> Right. It's a self-inflicted haunted place right in the center of town. Congratulations, humans. You played yourself. It's like Jumanji all over again. <laughs> yes. Pretty much. But, yeah, I think it's funny because we, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. Um, but there's different types of cemeteries and, like, how they come to be. And we have like that very like Paleolithic idea of just like we have to bury someone for the sake of burying them because they're dead up through um, this period of time where like we're talking about the cemetery up the street from where I live currently in 2022. That's basically a gorgeous park, um, but is filled with gravesites. <laughs> so it's interesting. Like, I think this formation of like a it's a public place now <laughs> like it's somewhere where you can go and spend time if you'd like to a lot of these beautiful places cemeteries were actually where people hung out and had lunch every day so when i was reading about this they were talking about um like mid 19th century there's obviously a lot of like health concerns and overcrowding and overpopulation and um, this idea of urban cemeteries like wasn't really working anymore because <laughs> people were getting like really sick. I know a lot of it was um, like kind of centered around Victorian era where there were so many people getting sick and this very um, 
large transition to how people think about death because it was so common and present in their everyday lives. So in contrast to this, like, <laughs> this website that I was reading off of, in contrast to the puritanical pessimism depicted in earlier cemeteries, <laughs> it shifted to this mindset of like, this is a place that can be dual use. Like we can um, use it as a park or like a setting for mm. celebrating people's lives as opposed to like pure mourning, which I think is cool. And I think where a lot of the like artwork comes into play in terms of like what's in a cemetery. Now I can bridge that gap for you. Um, you said puritanical. So if you talk about the artwork on your gravestones during the Puritan phase, especially, well, mostly New England, right? We're not going to see a whole bunch of that here because we're founded by Quakers. So mm. they did not at all have the same, like Quakers basically looking at Puritans going, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> Like, if you're talking about England getting rid of people and sending them away because they just don't want to have to deal with their, like, weird, quote, weird religion, the Quakers, right, they're they're a problem. But the Puritans are worse. The, like, if, you, if you're a Quaker, you're looking at them going, stop. Like, enough. And it shows in their gravestones. They're the ones that have the death's head. So the skull with the wings coming out mm. on the top of the gravestone which is like really prevalent first. This is, you see it all the time. It's like that. Uh, it's not, I don't, I want to say it's not very well done, but let's just say it, it does not look like the greatest of artwork most of the time. Um, you know, it's just my opinion. I've, I've seen better, right? <laughs> <laughs> so then it, then it changes from the death's head to the cherub with wings now, what I had to laugh at was the first one that, of these that I was looking at. It really didn't look like a cherub either. It looked like a very pissed off angel. Maybe, you know, the wings gave it away. <laughs> these designs go through the 1790s. And it's, like I said, it's mostly in areas where Puritans settled. So they have a very dour look at, look, look they have a dour look at life. They have an even worse outlook of death. This is nothing to be celebrated everything's terrible everything looks as bad as everybody else you talk about like the moravians being equal well this is they're equally bad <laughs> as far as the memorials right <laughs> right so from like the 1700 to uh to mid 1700s you're seeing the death set then 1745 there's this shift and it's now the cherub but it no longer really has what I call the resting bitch face uh, cherub. This one starts to smile now and it looks a lot less menacing. Maybe we're having a tiny, tinier, nicer outlook on how things are going. Uh, but then by 1790, you don't see it anymore and you see more of a Greek symbol with an urn and a willow. Mm. So that's, and, and anthropologists will say that you're seeing a, a waning of Orthodox Puritanism. So they're shifting away from that total sadness and misery and the artwork is actually showing that i then want to talk about one of the biggest shifts that you see and the most interesting one i think in all the things that we've done well, there's some modern ones that are pretty cool but me with my archaeology i'm a huge fan of the egyptian revival in art and architecture that we see in the 20s and the 30s mm. and you see it in gravestones and this ties in with what you were talking about as far as the cemetery being the park. 
I did a wonderful tour a few Halloweens ago of um, Sleepy Hollow Cemetery, mm-hmm. which is in New York. Uh, for those that aren't aware, it's right. Sleepy Hollow is right next to Nyack, New York. And it's the cemetery kind of goes up a little bit on a hill. And nowadays you can go up to that highest point and you can see New York City. You can see all the lights of New York City. It's really beautiful. It's like right there in the Hudson too. Mm. So um, some of the coolest Egyptian art revival stuff is in that cemetery. There's one that's just an unknown. Uh, it doesn't have a name or anything on the outside of it. It's just called the Unknown unknown Egyptian Mausoleum. Hmm. And it's, it's just absolutely gorgeous. I have some pictures of it. So I will share those on Instagram and tag you guys in after the show airs so then you know people can see it yeah absolutely i, I have a lot of sleepy hollow <laughs> i took like hundreds and hundreds of pictures of sleepy hollow it's so huge and this though this tour is when i found out what you were just talking about i couldn't believe it they're like yeah well it was so expensive um it was i think it was built in 1849 and into the mid 1900s people and, and this egyptian vi- revival is going on at the same time hmm. They're using that as a park because they just spent a ridiculous amount of money on a plot there. So they're not going to let that go to waste. And if they're not <laughs> dead, they're going to use that as a picnic area. Mm. So, and it is gorgeous. I mean, there's a creek that runs through it. And of course, the legend of Sleepy Hollow is you, you can see the creek, the bridge that was talked about in the story. It's all there. Uh, there is an unmarked grave of possibly the headless horse. Well, not we'll say <laughs> possibly the headless horseman, but it's definitely the unmarked grave of the Hessian soldier. Like that is a hundred, that is a hundred percent true historically speaking. Hmm. Uh, but we think that's where Washington Irving got the idea though from. So he took it from history. And then here in Pennsylvania, the winter mausoleum was built in 1930. That's in uh, Pittsburgh. It's a really great example of that Egyptian revival. And I'm sure maybe you guys have heard Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, because that has a lot of really fancy artwork type deals going on. In yeah, there. it's totally. not just. <laughs> yeah. So the Van Ness Parsons Mausoleum is actually a pyramid. That's about as, as Egyptian as it gets, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We were talking earlier about people's perception of cemeteries, but this idea that it was like a government civic institution, this land that was like people were privately investing in, the local government was investing in for the continual development of for health reasons, for safety reasons, but also like think about how much access people had to outdoor art in this time period. And like, they were all finding it in cemeteries. (laughs) It's so fascinating. But yeah, so I did want to tie back to, um, you're talking about some of the earliest grave sites were in Alaska. Um, But I had kind of a fun little bit of history that I stumbled upon the last time I was, um, a lot of my family lives up there and I was visiting them last, a couple years ago. And we were in Talkeetna, Alaska, which is this real, really tiny, um, rural, very kind of touristy town along the Alaska Railroad that traditionally was like a stop along the railroad for gold miners, um, just like a place to stop and kind of like 
gather your supplies, but now is a stop along the railroad to Denali National Park. But there is this semi-modern Athabascan tradition, which is one of the indigenous um, language groups in Alaska that um, is called, they're called spirit houses. But it all came from this time period where Russia had colonized Alaska and had forbode um, cremation because in the Russian Orthodox Church, you can't uh, cremate someone who's passed away. But that was what you did with uh, a family member that had passed away. So this idea of spirit houses came about that um, if you couldn't cremate someone like was traditional, that you would construct a spirit house over their burial place so the spirit would have a place to go. Um, and mm -hmm. they're decorated very similar in custom to um, traditions in a lot of Hispanic countries where you make um, an altar with all of the things that your family member loves and you put them, put them on the ofrenda. In this tradition, you would make a little house. You might include photos or food items um, and kind of decorate the house. The ones I saw were all like very colorful, a lot of primary colors, flowers on the outside. Um, a lot of them even in kind of this like Victorian style house, um, but just really like beautiful. And this kind of forced merging of religions and cultures due to colonization, but um, we happened to be staying at this campground that was really close to a cemetery um, that had some very traditional gravestones, but also some of these spirit houses. And I didn't know what they were at the time, but after doing some research, apparently there is in Eklutna, Alaska, which is a little bit north of Anchorage, kind of central Alaska, there's a huge cemetery with like a really big um a really big collection of these spirit houses. So that's, I think, one of my favorite, like, things that is created uh, post-death because it's so, like, individualized to the person, like a lot of gravestones are, but um, there isn't a lot of effort, it sounds like, to, um, to like, fix them up as they decay because the idea and tradition is to like let things return to the earth. So I just, I love that. That was like the coolest thing out of that trip. Uh, the last time I was there was learning about these spirit houses. Now that's really cool. I had to look these up because I have never seen this before. I've only heard spirit houses, like the term used in the Asian cultures and mm. Cambodia comes to mind because they're very like Cambodian architecture in general is really cool. And I, that's like, I wish that I had gone to school, found someone to go to school for like that type of archaeology as well, because it's so cool. But I'm like, ah, I can't, I can't do it all. Um, so that's just my personal uh, exploits as far as like learning things, but Cambodia architecture is really cool. And their spirit houses also reflect that too. They're very colorful um, and they have like spires on them and, you know, but these are like, these remind me more of the grave cages that were around during the Victorian times. But that was because they thought the vampires were real. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much vampire connection there is to these ones. No, I would say zero. <laughs> <when> I... 
I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on a limb here and say zero. Uh, these are really cute. They're like really. They're colorful, but they're like an elongated. And I don't. I seriously don't mean this in a disparaging way, but they look like elongated dog houses made of wood, except that they're all like super colorful and intricate and. That's really neat. Like, I've never seen that before. This could be an interesting segue into the covered, the cages of Pennsylvania. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) We're the only place in the whole country that has these um, cages on two graves. And that is in Columbia County, Pennsylvania. These were also called a mort safe. We saw them a lot in, uh, like I said, over in England, Scotland, etc., they would have like a cage made of iron or metal over top of your grave site. More commonly, it was just a giant slab of concrete or some kind of giant slab of rock that we put over your grave. And here in Pennsylvania, a lot of people said that, oh, this is because of vampirism. They were afraid that these girls were vampires. They, it was a very tragic story. Uh, sister and sister-in-law, they both died shortly after giving birth and, um, yeah, it was had nothing to do with vampires at all. Uh, we are actually going to be talking more about resurrectionists um, mm. in December. But there was a rash of resurrectionism going on in Ohio, which is not far away from Catawissa, Pennsylvania, where these are located. And so um, sort of come to the conclusion that this is because someone was trying to steal the bodies. Wow. That's crazy. For science. Yeah. So it started here with this story. And then we kind of branched out and realized that, well, yeah, this, the person, but she did a great job of kind of figuring this all out and realizing that there was a rash of uh, resurrectionists, people who were stealing bodies for the scientific community that was going on not too far over the border. A family member found out about the possibility and then spent the extra money to have these cages put over top of the girls graves so that would have been even more tragic if you you know uh this one resurrectionist we're going to talk about though he's he was kind of crazy and um he stole he sold a famous body oh oh <laughs> you'll have to listen to the episode sounds uh, good in december but yeah that's so crazy they're like oh vampires I'm like it's not vampires guys i promise you <laughs> Well, I, I had to look up a picture of these because I you were like, oh, there's only two in Pennsylvania. And I was thinking, that's kind of strange because I – do you know or have any information on, like, this is a cage that covers the entirety of the top of the grave. But I've seen a lot in Pennsylvania, the ones that kind of go around the outside of the grave and have, like, a cement footer on the end of it. So it almost looks like a – like a bed, I guess, like the gravestone is the headboard and then there's this caged part and then a cement footer. But I don't know if that differs from the mort safes that you're talking about. Yeah, it it does because the the mort safe was something that was designed to go completely around it. So I know what you're talking about. Mm. It's more like a little fence almost around it. Um, This was, I'm sure that there was probably either some deterrence involved uh, for the same reasons, but these are the only two cages like this, actually, in the United States. Wow, that's that's crazy. Yeah. They're very, very individual, and they do look Victorian if you if you look at them. 
They have a very like Victorian look to them. Uh, it turns out that the family did have ties to the steel company. Oh. In the area. Then there's the, oh my God, this is so stupid. The Erie, Pennsylvania graves, gravesite, another mausoleum. They called it the Vampire Crypt because it had a, a V over top of it is what they said. <laughs> As if you would advertise, <laughs> I'm a vampire. <laughs> and I, that one, that one's real though, right? I mean, it's, it's a real, it's real vampire. It's a real crypt. It's a real vampire, right? <laughs> Come get me. <laughs> that's 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 Dracula himself. They're playing extreme mind games. They're like, yeah, if we if we say that we are vampires, nobody's gonna believe us because they're gonna say, why would vampires do that? <laughs> well, that's exactly where vampires want to be is in a mausoleum in Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> People, uh, listen. This is this is where legend and folklore study like comes into play because this thing had a mind of its own and all of a sudden people in the area started saying that this guy was it was a guy buried in there he was from transylvania look there's a v above the crypts if you look at the photograph though you can kind of see that it's actually flowers leaves and you know it's like acanthus leaves in a tulip it's not a damn v it's just (laughs) stupid um and so when i originally aired this last year i was like this time last year i'm like Guys, you know how long it took me to figure out how wrong this was? Like literally 10 minutes of internet research. <laughs> I'm not even joking. It was so bad. Oh my gosh. Because cemeteries have records online. Mm-hmm. And if if the person if all if all the people are deceased and there's no other, you know, connection, they'll usually put like, you know, the the family information can go up there because there's no connections to any living individuals. So there's no reason for anonymity. I was like, I get it. Yeah. So this was called the Brown Vault. And then when people found out it was the Brown Vault, they were like, yeah, but nobody's by the name of Brown is buried in it. And I'm like, yeah, well, there's a story there. (laughs) Yep. There's seven individuals buried in there. They're from the Goodrich family. Uh, You can cross-reference that with the names in Erie, and you can find out that Gertrude Brown was the only surviving child of George Goodrich. Um. She got married. She changes her last name. But um, it's one of those situations where the mausoleum was not carved with a name on the outside because at the time he had other living family members, and he wasn't sure if they were going to be good riches or Browns buried in, in there. Ah, I see. Right. So it gets called the Brown vault by the cemetery because she's the one who winds up owning it. And unfortunately the rest of her family dies before um, she does. So you're left with this kind of like, well, who's, who's actually buried in it, you know, but it's, it's the good rich family that wound up getting buried in it. And so she just decided never to have the name put on the outside. And I don't even think that she wound up, if I remember correctly, she's not even buried in there. <laughs> she was buried with her husband then. Right. Cause and, no, and he no. had a, yeah. Right. So why? Yeah. Cause he had a different plot in yeah. another part of Pennsylvania. Yeah. That makes sense. Say, right. Cause no one's buried in there. Cause there's a vampire buried in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go down to Paul's ropes and stuff after this. <laughs> 
I'll see you there. I'm sure he also sells steaks too. We can steaks, garlic, ropes, and stuff. <laughs> We're expand. He's expanding. Thanks, Paul. You're a real one. <laughs> well, I thought in in true uh, crossover podcast crossover spirit um we, we could end ha 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 no pun intended we <laughs> we could end with uh the most just the most um <laughs> the most the most uh what's the word i'm looking for mostiest the mostiest <laughs> art project <laughs> um which is still in continuation today um, but there is uh, this fantabulous quote that was pulled from a book Andy Warhol wrote titled America in 1985, reading, I never understood why when you died, you didn't just vanish and everything could just keep going on the way it was. Only you wouldn't just only you just wouldn't be there. I always thought I'd like my own tombstone to be blank. No epitaph and no name. Well, actually, I'd like it to say figment. <laughs> End quote. And in 2013, the Warhol Museum out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, collaborated with a company called EarthCam, which is a webcam streaming company to provide a 24-7 live stream of Andy Warhol's gravesite located in the cemetery of the Holy Ghost Byzantine Catholic Church in Pittsburgh. Um, so you can still view it on <laughs> the museum's website. The project is titled Figment. And when I checked on it at 11.38 a.m. this morning, there were eight cans of Campbell's tomato soup sitting on top of his grave. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> well, I checked, I checked it before we started recording, and they were still there. <laughs> Which is awesome, because the first photograph that I saw of this gravesite of Andy Warhol just had one can of soup on it. <laughs> But then when I checked the, you know, the feed, because like you said, it's like an ongoing art installation, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, yeah, there's there was eight, eight cans all together. I thought, wow. Well, when I checked it this morning, there's a guy mowing the lawn like next to it. And he was just like looking at the soup cans. I was like, this is the best moment to log on. But <laughs> my favorite thing about that is someone was thinking ha, 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 i'm gonna be so clever and bring a can of soup and put it on andy warhol's grave and then they get there and there's seven other cans of soup already there because <laughs> that's and anyone's point of like contact with andy warhol in any format is just campbell's soup can. <laughs> so it really just all boils down to the fault of art education in our public school system but um, you can view it online. It's The Warhol Museum is amazing, um, and it still runs on their website, so you can check it out on there. It's titled Figment. Nice. So if if you're going to end on the mostiest, artiest death installation, <laughs> <laughs> then I, I, have, I have to end on the craziest burial that there is here in Pennsylvania. At least that's how I feel about it. Absolutely. Because I had a lot of questions when I first read it. And then those questions were thankfully answered. Because <laughs> <laughs> there is a man named George E. Swanson. And he was a sergeant in the U.S. Army during World War II. Survived it. Came home. He uh, was laid to rest in 1994. 
On his gravestone, you'll see a picture of his 1984 Corvette. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, he was buried in it. Oh my gosh. He had been married before. So uh, I believe the wife's, yes, the wife's ashes, his first wife's ashes were in an urn. He was placed in an urn as well. And uh, front seat, right? And his surviving wife, you know, they had talked about this and she was okay with it. And uh, he bought up several plots in a row so that he could bury the whole car. <laughs> I feel like that's just a waste of a 1984 Corvette. Just going to say it. Uh, <laughs> while in, they put in Engelbert Humperdinck's song, Release Me, playing on the cassette tape inside the car. And then by crane lowered him in there. Um, what was this man's name? He is George E. Swanson. Oh, George. Yeah. What were you thinking? And uh, it's Brush Brush Creek Cemetery uh, near Irwin, Pennsylvania. And it was his, his uh, second wife, Carolyn, that made sure that everything was taken care of for him. So... Uh, <laughs> apparently she will be like the headstone was pre-done and uh you know just had to be filled in with his death date so this whole thing was all was all ready to go because it if you look at it it does say george e and then it has the death birth and it says geraldine his first wife and then there is a space that says carolyn birthday and then her i don't think she's passed away i don't know though hmm. you know lots happened in the last few years so um she will She's either also buried there or she will be buried there. So good old Carolyn, man. She really <laughs> carried that torch all the way through. God love her. She did a good job. Uh, and since this is Halloween, I, I also just honorable mention, we have the shark tombstone that's in Pittsburgh. And that is the shark from Jaws on a tombstone. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> well, I will I will throw in a, a local honorable mention. Um over here in Nisky Hill Cemetery there is a gravestone that I can't say exactly how tall it is. I saw a photo on someone's blog of them standing next to it, so I'd have to guess twelve feet. Um it is when you think of phallic gravestones, this one absolutely <laughs> takes the cake. It's not an obelisk. It is really, truly shaped, uh, rounded, is <laughs> how I will put it. Um, I couldn't find a lot of information other than what's printed on the stone is uh, Thomas Wetterau. Um, and it is so iconic <laughs> that the Brooklyn Museum... Uh, has a photograph taken by Donald Burns um, titled Gravestone of Thomas Wetterau, Nisky Hill Cemetery, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, in their permanent collection. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> good for I you, Thomas. <laughs> I, I also have questions. <laughs> what the... Okay, I'm very confused. So, I'm... Uh, okay, hold on. Is this the one that looks like, like it's it's a twirling like mm -hmm. shape? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So I got the right one. Okay, because I, because you know, you make the mistake of looking things up and 
in um, <laughs> Google because I wanted to see it, <laughs> you know, because I don't know what you're talking about. And um, if you type in like phallic gravestone, uh, Bethlehem, you get something different. Okay, that's a really so, good warning. Thank you. Ben's now um, Googling. <laughs> there's one that looks even more like a penis, but it's not, it's not here. It's, not, ne- it's not next to my house. So don't look at the one from Latvia. That's not the correct penis. Okay. I like that someone commented and said that they had to walk through that grave at that cemetery when they were a child. But And it's a huge cemetery. And they said that they always knew they were walking the right way if they saw the, quote, dick statue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so... I was able to find a little bit of information, but I didn't consider it a reliable source. Um, but there's a gentleman, I think his name is Ed. Yep, Ed, who has a blog <laughs> called The Cemetery Traveler, um, where he recounts his experiences with all things cemeterial, as quoted in his <laughs> blog bio, mm-hmm. um, and traveled to Niski Hill with a group of friends and their immediate uh, wayfinding marker was meet you at the giant phallus, which he included in his nice <laughs> his blog. So <laughs> Thomas stands tall for all of eternity. <laughs> all right. Well, Kiki, thank you very much <laughs> for joining us this evening. <laughs> You're welcome. That I could. I'm so glad that I could come on your podcast and class it up. <laughs> Absolutely. I look forward to to many spooky art crossovers in the future. And if anyone has suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us on social media. Um, and please check out the Mission Spooky podcast. It is Mission Spooky on all platforms uh, except LinkedIn, it looks like here based on your list. What the heck? <laughs> so Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter Find Mission Spooky and give them a listen. Or else. Or else. (laughs) Happy Halloween, everybody.